Welcome to the AAI podcast channel. My name is Matt Whitinger, and I'm a resident fellow in poverty studies here at AEI. My work is focused on safety net policies, including cash welfare, child welfare, and unemployment insurance. Today, I'm joined by Clarence Carter, who's the director of the Office of Family Assistance and the acting director of the Office of Community Services at HHS's Administration for Children and Families. Previously, Clarence founded the Institute for Improvement of the Human Condition, where he worked with state and local safety net agencies to meet the emergency needs of socially and economically vulnerable citizens. Clarence also served as the director of the Arizona Department of Economic Security, in addition to other state, federal, and local human services positions. Clarence, welcome. I just read your short bio, but tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. For starters, how'd you get to D.C., and what do you do in your current job? Matt, thanks so much for having me today. What I do in my current job is the director of the Office of Family Assistance in the Administration for Children and Families in the Department of Health and Human Services. It administers a number of grant programs, principally the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF program. But in addition to that, also the Healthy Marriage and Responsible Fatherhood grant program, which is the principal public dollars that uh, support both healthy marriage and responsible fatherhood. And finally, the Health Professions Opportunities Grants, which is a career ladder program for careers in the health profession for low-income individuals. I also serve as the acting director of the Office of Community Services, which administers a number of the poverty programs that were created as part of the war on poverty in in the 1960s. So that is, you work with some of the most important basic building blocks of the federal government's efforts to help low-income families better their situation, go to work, strengthen their families, and lift themselves out of poverty. That's correct. That has been the centerpiece of my career in the public sector. I've had the blessing and good fortune of serving now two presidents, four governors, and a mayor in senior-level safety net administration positions. I have probably um, had some at least tangential connection to every one of the more than 80 safety net programs authorized by the federal government. So all that said, you've worked both at the state and federal level, and I know that that's given you a deep appreciation of the complexity of all that, the safety net, those 80 programs, 80-some-odd programs, which includes a whole lot of programs that have various constituencies, lots of different policies, competing goals. So in thinking about all that, what most people think of as the welfare system, but really which goes well beyond sort of the standard definition of welfare, what have you determined works today and what really doesn't work as well as as it should? What works is that we are very good at providing crisis assistance. So if indeed the crisis is cash, then you have a TANF program, or if you're working, you have an earned income tax credit. If it's housing, you have housing supports. If it's food, you have SNAP support. So we are very good at meeting emergency crises. Where we have failed as a society is in meeting those emergency crises, not been poised to grow people beyond the crisis. So we actually have a system that manages the challenges attendant to poverty as opposed to attempt to growing people beyond them. Yeah, I mean, something that I've kind of focused on in my work here in the brief time I've been at AEI is we have a welfare system that's good or at least is quite focused on stabilizing individuals. 
But when it comes to things like I think most Americans would hope that the system would be better at, which is promoting upward mobility and lifting people out of the need for these programs, the system really doesn't do that good a job of all that. That is exactly right. The problem is it doesn't have the intention to do that, right. okay? Its intention is to administer the program that provides whatever that basic need is. It's our argument that our base intention ought to be that that individual or family presents themselves because for whatever reason, they have an inability to meet some basic aspects of their life. And so our society ought to have an urgency about helping them to get to the place where they can meet those basic needs in their life. We should not want anybody to be a ward of the public. And meanwhile, this, the bigger picture is our system really isn't focused on those broader goals. It's kind of focused on, hey, let me make sure that you have some food stamps so you can put food on the table today, That's, not how can we help you get to a place where you don't need food stamps tomorrow. That's exactly right. And Matt, it's really important that we have been pigeonholed from this philosophical perspective as if somehow what we want to do is to have these vital services not exist. That is not where we come from at all. But what we believe is that these services have to be tools to move to some other destination, to move to a destination beyond it. They should not be a destination unto themselves. Mm -hmm. And so for far too many people in our society, the public safety net has become its own destination. And we, the, the folks being pigeonholed, would be Republicans, conservatives, those that actually want to reform the system in the direction of helping people better themselves, as yes. opposed to being sort of accepting of, well, food stamps is enough or Medicaid is enough. Exactly correct. So you're an ambitious guy who's had a lot of leadership roles and a lot of experience in this. And so naturally, you look at this state of affairs and you say, well, there's got to be a better way. Right. So one of the things you've developed is a vision for how we can change safety net programs in a more productive, more holistic direction. Can you summarize what that vision looks like? Sure. That vision, it begins with two principal thoughts. One is intention. And when I say intention, what I mean is that our system should approach those that we serve with the intention to help them grow beyond. And then once you begin with that intention, then you look at the existing architecture and you try to align the architecture so that it achieves the intention. And right now, I, I would argue that the architecture of our safety net system is much like there is this place in San Jose, California. It's called the Winchester Mystery House. And it was a, a place built by the heir to the Winchester Rifle Fortune, where she embarked upon a 33-year, 24-7 building process, literally with people always adding on and building to this house with no blueprint. There literally is no blueprint for it. And so today it is almost an amusement park where you, you go in and stairs lead into ceilings and cabinets open and there's nothing in the cabinet. You just open to the other side. There was no expense spared, okay, just as with our, our public safety net. But it is, it lacks any kind of architectural design. So, so those first two things, it would be intention and then a design to meet the intention. I would say, even before that, 
it has to begin with the dignity of the people that we serve. What it's our belief is that any individual who is willing to put forth the requisite effort, if they are properly supported, they can grow beyond any circumstance. So, so we begin with the dignity and the value of the person. Then you have the intention to help them grow beyond a difficult circumstance, and you align the architecture to support it. I mean, I think anybody who comes to Washington, D.C. and appreciates the monuments and the Smithsonian will soon be struck by all of the various federal agencies that have a presence here, right? They, they have their buildings too. And for each of those, there's one, two, five, ten, whatever programs that operate in this space. If you actually saw the chart that depicts the operation of these 80-some programs, it's kind of striking that no one in their right mind would actually design a system like this. But this is what you get when the federal government sort of adds a new program a year, a decade, whatever, and you carry this on for five, 10, 15 decades from basically the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, and then you mm -hmm. get the New Deal, and then the Great Society, and pretty soon you're dealing with dozens and dozens of programs, and they may work at cross-purposes. But the more fundamental thing I think that all this suggests is a sort of basic question, what's the safety net for? Right. And its evolution has been to support individuals in their current states, not sort of lift them out of where they are now. That's right. So. I would argue that if somehow you were able to magically erase what we have, what we term as the safety net today, and ask someone to redesign it, you literally couldn't redesign this because it makes no sense. Yeah. Literally makes no operational sense for serving economically, socially, and developmentally vulnerable people. So what in your view would that redesign look like? So what, what would a reformed welfare state appear to be? What a reformed welfare state would appear to be is first, and let's take an individual who has to present themselves for some crisis benefit or service. Right now, what happens is an eligibility assessment. The question gets asked to determine whether or not they meet the criterion to receive that benefit. We would begin differently. We would begin with a whole assessment, a whole, a universal assessment to understand all the presenting circumstances of this individual or family. We would then use that assessment in conjunction with that individual or family to develop a plan that says, okay, yes, today we're going to help you meet this emergency crisis, but it is our objective collectively, okay, with your help to grow you beyond this moment. So we're going to leave this engagement not only having met the emergency, but literally having developed a plan by which we will grow you beyond this moment. And so the idea would be that should be not simply a meeting of that moment, but creating an environment of hope for that individual or family that says, okay, I'm in this difficult place today, but my government and my society is going to partner with me to help me grow beyond it. So we begin there. And then with that universal assessment, it then allows us to connect that individual or family to the, the benefits, goods, and services that will service the plan to help them grow beyond. 
And that individual who right now is an eligibility worker actually becomes a navigator, okay? A handholder, someone to help them navigate those things in which they have to navigate in order to effectuate that plan. The person who got into the job, and I'm talking at this point about the eligibility worker, who got into the job to help people, okay, that we have literally made just a paper pusher or an administrator, now is actually able to do what their heart chooses to do, and that's to help that vulnerable individual or family move beyond. So then once, once we've got a universal understanding, once we then have a plan to move beyond, and we've got a navigator or a case coordinator or a case manager to help them navigate, then we need to have the programs aligned in such a way that they can support the plan. One of the things that is central to the dysfunction of the existing safety net is what's called the benefits cliff. And the cliff is a result of the dysfunction of design. Because our system designed all of these programs singularly with no overarching intention, then the rules and the objectives of one program oftentimes run at counter-purpose with other programs. And so the idea would be that all of these programs or any of them that were necessary could be used in support of creating a trajectory beyond that circumstance. So I'm struck by your description of the changes that are needed involving better plans and navigation and all that. And I'm sort of wondering, who's in charge? Who's properly in charge? Is it the individual who's in need or is it the government? What's the kind of agency involved in the vision that you see? Matt, I, I would argue that every individual is in charge of their own fate and circumstances. The government can create the enabling conditions to support an individual or family growing beyond. But at the end of the day, I have to run my race. And so that's another important tenet of this vision. It's not simply about the thing of just pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps. What's central to that is at the end of the day, the individual or family has to do the work. What government can do is can create the enabling conditions and partner with in that journey. But it is absolutely the role of the individual to be the key cog in their own well-being. Sure. That's entirely antithetical to the way the safety net works now, right? So the individual approaches the government, fills out a form. If they satisfy all the boxes, then they will get something that the government determines will be good for them. It's sort of turned on its head under the, the current system. So this is, we're in Washington, D.C. This is a town of laws and regulations. Your agency is prolific at publishing regulations and uh, exists because of lots of laws. Would any of the vision that you foresee require changes in laws or regulation, or is this the kind of thing that an intrepid governor could try to start, or how does this work? So one of the things that we have worked on and were able to get into the president's budget is authority and dollars to demonstrate these different kind of approaches. Part of our argument was that the last significant change in the public safety net 
came 23 years ago with the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. That was a result of states being given the authority to demonstrate different models to aid the families with dependent children. What we believe coming in and the conversation that we have with the administration is that it is time for the next generation of demonstration around this issue of the safety net. There was such energy and innovation around those demonstrations 25, 30 years ago, but there hasn't been that kind of brain power and innovation in this space in a very long time. And so the idea would be to let's authorize the next set of demonstrations, but let's go beyond one program. Those demonstrations were about the aid to families with dependent children. The American safety net is much bigger. Mm-hmm. It's infinitely bigger mm-hmm. than the TANF program. Sure. And so the idea of these demonstrations is how could you braid things together with the intention of growing people beyond? So it will ultimately require changes in legislation, but we think that we can figure those things out as we demonstrate these different models. You just presented a whole bunch of historical terms. And for our listeners who may not be uh, deeply embedded in the welfare system and laws and policies, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act is the long title for the 1996 welfare reform law. AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, was really the outgrowth of the Aid to Dependent Children program that was created in the New Deal by Franklin Roosevelt, that was actually replaced by the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families block grant that people sort of generally know now as cash welfare. But as you suggested, the welfare state goes well beyond that. In fact, some of the fastest growing programs in the welfare state, one of them is not within HHS's boundaries, the food stamps program. Medicaid is, if anything, the big enchilada when it comes to benefits and services and expenses for taxpayers involved in supporting low-income families. So there's a lot there. So the demonstrations that you suggested were previously known as waivers, and those tested things like what would be the effect of expecting individuals to work in exchange for benefits, have on receipt of benefits, likelihood of going to work, would time limits on benefits affect individuals sort of take on benefits and whether now is the right time for somebody to receive benefits or maybe they should bank those benefits for for future use if they thought that their lives might get more complicated or need those benefits later. Is the focus of this new round of demonstrations really sort of broad-based and open-ended? States can use a variety of benefits in a different way or are there thematic things that you foresee those demos sort of pursuing? The thematic basis of this proposed set of demonstrations is, can you reduce dependency by growing capacity? So the theory at play here is that individuals avail themselves of the system of public supports because they don't know another way to make their life work without them. So if it is our objective to reduce their dependency on those supports, then we have to build their capacity. So as I see this in in my head at this point, the way that this would work is that for a cohort of individuals or families that would be served through these demonstrations, you would begin aggregating the level of dependency. What is the amount of public benefits, goods, and services that this cohort currently 
excesses, then we should be able to, through intervention, by building their capacity, track the reduction in the need for those services. This idea of growing capacity to reduce dependency, I feel like has to be the basis of the safety net. Our society was built on the bedrock principle of freedom. The framers attempted to put together a society in which the greatest level of freedom could be maintained while protecting for health, safety, and commerce. And so it would follow for us that everything ought to support that bedrock principle of freedom. Well, the system of public support is antithetical to freedom, okay, in that it is focused on, is focused on providing supports as long as you meet the eligibility criterion, too. It's not about getting people free to act in their own best interests. Sure. Yeah, and that goes to I mean, what's often referred to as welfare traps and sort of the, the idea that people get stuck on benefits if they aren't able to work and lift themselves off of benefits. You mentioned capacity a couple of times. I wonder if you can define what you think of as capacity. What are, what's individual's capacity mean? So let me use an example. So for me, capacity in this example, it would be earnings, okay? I have so much capacity by what I earn to be able to make my way. So the idea would be, let's grow the capacity of those earnings so that I can afford a larger portion of those things that are vital to my existence. So growing capacity means growing credentials that would allow me to earn a better job. Growing capacity means increasing my education. Growing capacity means reducing my uh, bad debt load. Those kinds of things which enhance the functioning ability of an individual or family to be able to make their own way. That's what we mean by growing capacity. So, so far, we've discussed this as basically a government exercise, right? So we're talking individuals come to government looking for benefits, and we're going to change the way government interacts with them. But there's a whole lot of not government out there, too. Tell me what your vision of the private sector, civil society, churches, faith-based organizations, foundations, universities, what, where do those actors fit into this vision? A couple of thoughts leading into that question. First, Matt, between federal, state, and local government, we spend annually a little over a trillion dollars a year to service the economically, socially, and developmentally vulnerable. Now, what is very interesting is that $1 trillion a year doesn't count one penny of not government spending. But yet, there literally are billions of dollars that other sectors in our society spend in this same pursuit. Because we have such a government-centric approach, we don't leverage the assets of our society to make the whole greater than the sum of its parts. That being said, an important part of this vision that we've been talking about is government serving as a catalyst to unleash and leverage the rest of society in this pursuit. It's our argument that the problem of addressing the human condition is bigger than government, but it is not bigger than all of us. And we believe that the vast majority of our society wants to help. From somebody who will pass someone on a street corner and give them a quarter or a dollar, they want to help. Now, quite frankly, I would argue with that prescription as help. But the point is, 
This is the most benevolent society ever known to humankind. And this society wants to help. And so we ought to leverage all of that in pursuit of this. And so as part of our work plan, we have focused on every sector of our society to explain this vision and their role in it. So the community of faith, academia, philanthropy, the private sector, on and on, all have a role to play in this. But we as a government, instead of believing that we have to do it all, we should serve as a catalyst to unleash the passion, the genius, the resource of the rest of the society to do so. What would that actually look like? So let's say you have a young lady who today would be looking for TANF cash assistance, low-income single mom, struggling to get by. So in the vision, the caseworker, the navigator Mm -hmm. under your plan would sit down and help her chart a course for the future. Would you have a local priest or social service provider or an other adult or aunt and uncle, would, would those actors literally be sitting down and helping sort of chart what that plan is? What, what's the sort of tangible role and mechanism that you would connect these various organizations? So again, let me give you an example. One of the challenges that that mother that you just described has is she doesn't have enough of a social circle to help support in times of difficulty. None of us are independent. We are all interdependent. But yet, many of the people that we serve, they don't have as robust of a social support network to help address challenges in their life. So one of the things that we have identified and partner with communities on is social capital. So you have organizations, a a community of faith or other private organizations that will bring members of the community around that individual or family as they execute their plan to grow beyond. So building up that community support mechanism that would surround and gird that family through that moment, that's one of the ways that we would engage community-based organizations. Are those organizations scared off by the way these programs function today? Do we actively sort of keep those organizations at arm's length, or does government just sort of proceed on its merry way and they proceed on their merry way? It is more that, that currently they all proceed on their merry way. But one of the arguments that we try to make in this vision is that government is good at transaction. It is horrible at relationship. Many of the people that we serve, they need relationship and transaction as part of this trajectory beyond. But yet, again, government in its arrogance, it feels like it's supposed to solve the problem somehow. And so it does crowd out. I mean, we have crowded out other sectors of our society from being part of the problem solving here. And so government has to check its arrogance and say, you know something, what we're going to do is we're going to have another role, but that role is going to be as a catalyst to bring the rest of our society to solving this problem and let every sector bring its time, talent, and treasure to solving the problem. So drawing the focus back on the government, you mentioned that the government at all levels spends about a trillion dollars on low-income benefits and services. Does the vision contemplate spending more, spending less, just sort of redirecting current services and benefits in a more productive direction? 
It's the latter there, Matt. It is our argument that spending is absolutely not the issue. We spend more than enough. We just, what we spend, we spend poorly. We spend it on failed strategies and also breaking it all down so that the $1.1 trillion is not an aggregate amount that would have the power of $1 trillion. It gets broken down so many times that no, in and of itself, it's not enough. But if we rethink the strategies and the structures, then I think that is more than enough money, along with unleashing and leveraging the other investments that the rest of the society makes. So the idea that this needs more money is a ridiculous notion. So I've heard you talk about growing people out of assistance, not throwing them out. That's right. Tell us more about what you mean by that and so, so, how we so, make that a reality. Right. Okay. So, so this goes back to this whole idea of growing capacity. I was having a conversation with a group of African-American clergy when I was in Arizona, and they asked me to explain my philosophy because these African-American pastors were not used to an African-American conservative leading a welfare agency. And they said, well, can you please explain this to us? And I talked about this very conversation that we have, that when people have challenges in our society, it ought to be our objective to grow them beyond it and not just kick people out or time them out or sanction them out, but literally to address the circumstances that have them there and grow them out. And one of the pastors said, grow them out, not throw them out. That'll preach. Okay. <laughs> so the idea is to intentionally address those circumstances that has that individual or family in need of that support. And by intentionally addressing them and reducing their need for those supports, you would then reduce their dependency on the government, you'd increase their freedom, and you could ultimately reduce our expenditures. The world is literally awash in data, but when it comes to government programs like kinds we're talking about, a lot of times that data is really not put to use, especially when it comes to holding them accountable for actual results. I mean, sure. you have the first question of, well, what's the result you're going for? Right. And a lot of these programs, it's, well, how many people can you sign up for this or that benefit? It That's doesn't right. even ever get to the point of how do we grow people's capacity so they don't need these benefits in the long run. Right. But sort of setting aside that current problem, how can we use the data that we have available to better hold programs accountable to make sure we're delivering the right services to people? that actually achieve the ends that we want them to achieve. Matt, you hit the point spot on that we are absolutely awash in data. It is my argument that we don't ask the right questions to properly utilize the data. The data that we have tells us how many units of service we have provided. It tells us how much we expend. It tells us, you know, who stayed within the rules. We don't ask the question how many people have we grown beyond? What's very interesting is government gets what it asks for. It simply asks for the wrong things. And so our argument is that we ought to use our data in support of this objective to grow people beyond. And once you reestablish that objective, once you establish that objective, then what you do is you say, okay, now how can my data help me? achieve that objective. We have been involved in some discussions with technology companies around this. Things like predictive analytics 
ought to help us understand if we encounter this circumstance thousands and thousands of times, can't the data tell us maybe this set of interventions will be able to support what we're trying to do? So I would argue that we have all the data that we need. Now, there are some, from my perspective, ridiculous data restrictions. And again, that is an outgrowth of we were collecting data in one program for the purpose of that thing, okay? We weren't collecting the data in order to create a whole picture of a family to help their wellness and moving beyond. So there are some challenging restrictions, but all the data we could ever want is available to us. We simply have to use it to ask better questions. I'm sort of reminded of back when I was on the Hill, one of your predecessors, Wade Horn, testified about an effort in D.C to actually use data under something called the National Directory of New Hires, which is this database that HHS maintains basically for child support purposes. So one of the things the 1996 welfare reform law did was it tried to do a better job of collecting child support from generally absent dads to send to custodial moms so that they wouldn't have to depend so much on welfare. Turns out that was a tremendous success, but it also created this database of everybody who just got a job in America. So along comes the District of Columbia that was trying to figure out what was going on with lots of people who were dropping off the welfare caseload. And it turned out they, in their administrative system, just recorded them as people that left the welfare caseload and the case was closed and they were sort of gave the appearance of being cut off. Well, if you actually looked at the National Director of New Hires, you would discover many of those people left because of work. It's just the administrative systems didn't know that they left. And of course, from the individual standpoint, once I get a job, I'm not going to go back and tell my welfare case worker, hey, I got a job so you can record that and have a happy ending in my welfare case. So to your point, we have a lot of data, but unless you're asking the right questions and holding programs accountable for things you actually want them to do using that data, you're never going to know what actually is going on. That's exactly right. And Matt, if I could add here just a sort of a slight pivot, the Assistant Secretary for the Administration for Children and Families, Lynn Johnson, she was previously director of the Jefferson County, Colorado Human Services Agency. And in that, she ran an agency that spanned the gamut of many of these human services programs. And so she has an instinctual understanding of the need to connect and how you can connect across that enterprise to achieve a better outcome. And that is what she has driven all of the leadership of the Administration for Children and Families to do. Not to think of ourselves as these singular program administrators, but think of us as part of an engine, an integrated engine of human well-being. And so how do all these dots connect to build the capacity of people to reduce dependency? So it sounds like she's in on the vision, too. She's very much in. Okay. So the president has proposed strengthening work and activity requirements for able-bodied adults receiving benefits under programs like food stamps and Medicaid and housing. And that all builds off of some of the pro-work policies that were in place involving welfare recipients for over the last 20 years. Is that idea, expecting and supporting work by low-income individuals, central to the vision? I mean, I assume that's sort of fundamental to where you're headed, right? It is absolutely central to the vision. While work can't be a one-off or an only thing, 
it is an essential tool in a toolkit to grow beyond economic and social vulnerability. It's not punitive. The idea is that if indeed we hope for you to be the captain of your own fate, to be able to determine your direction in life, to be able to earn that which allows you to do it is central to that. And so the idea of work, it is such an important tool in the toolkit to be able to help people grow beyond. So yes, exactly the president's emphasis on work in this regard is spot on, again, as a mechanism. And Matt, we have the kind of economy that I have not seen in my career in doing this work. We have more jobs than there are people to fill them. Industries are taking unusual routes to finding a labor force. So what an amazing opportunity to understand the knowledge, skills, and ability that the employer sector needs and to match this economically vulnerable consumer with those knowledge, skills, and abilities so they can hold those jobs. Yeah, as recently as five years ago, there was concerns that rising number of people collecting disability benefits were going to be a sort of a permanent trend. And that has turned around. Basically, the strong economy is sucking people into Into. work, which is exactly what you want to have happen. The president's daughter has also played a big role in the administration's efforts to support working families, including by promoting the larger child tax credit that was included in the 2017 tax reform law, and now working to develop a paid leave program for new parents. How does her role sort of align with your vision? It aligns perfectly in that. I said a couple of minutes ago that employment is essential, but it can't be a one-off. The individuals and families that we are serving, they have multiple presenting needs. And the work that Ivanka is doing around addressing some of those other needs, like child care, like leave, which, again, things that strengthen family and strengthen the ability to work. So this administration is not simply saying, everybody go to work. It understands that, yes, that is our objective for everybody who can work, should work, but it is to create the supports that will support work. Well, and at the same time, the strong economy is having that same dynamic from an employer standpoint, right? If you're an employer who's looking for workers to fill positions and all of a sudden you need to raise wages or expand benefits to attract a particular group of people, single moms, say, whoever, somebody who needs childcare, needs support to be able to go to work, that's what you're going to do because that's what a strong economy does. Exactly right. So if we did all this, if we created the vision and it was in place, I know you're a strong supporter of evidence-based policymaking and holding programs accountable for results. What are some of the results that you would see that would be different from the results that we get from the current system when it comes to likelihood of people to be working, saving, rising incomes, reduced benefit collection? Is it just that? Is it more? How would we hold the vision accountable to the results that you want to have it achieve? So in addition to those things that you laid out, we would also see a gradual reduction in their need to access those benefits. So absolutely, you want to be able to measure an increase in earnings, an increase in savings, an increase in skills and credentials, a reduction in bad debt. Those kinds of things to me are essential to growing capacity. 
But you should then also see a commensurate gradual reduction in the need for those public supports. So those are the kinds of things that we'd want to measure to determine whether or not the vision was effective. So let's finish up where we started. What inspires you to take this on? So you have a large, costly, multi-agency, unwieldy, complicated welfare system in this country with various safety net programs included in that. Why take that on? Why not just sort of try to do the best you can in your current job and hand it off to the next person? Because, Matt, millions of people in this society can't find their way home. They can't find their way home because of the circumstances of life. And we have in our society the heart and the resources to address that for people. We simply have a flawed set of strategies, no overarching objective to be able to address all those needs. And I feel like I was put on this earth for the purpose of making those systems that were to serve economically, socially, and developmentally vulnerable people to make those systems work. And so it's not just making the TANF program work or making the community services block grant work. It is about creating a society that is about building the capacity of people to act in their own best interest. Well, I, for one, am glad that you're here doing that service, and I thank you very much for joining me today. Matt, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.